And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the second best day of the week. Of course, it's Thursdays and it's, uh, you know, it's a real investment show. So we got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Of course, CPI, that was the big number out yesterday for the markets. Uh, 7% on inflation. And of course, when you dig down into that actual CPI number, what are you seeing? Well, of course, you're seeing the, the things that are growing the most, right? The things that are increasing the most in price, food, energy, those are the areas where, of course, that impacts the economy as a whole. And again, we've talked about this before, is that, you know, if you take a look at inflation and the way that we calculate inflation, housing is a very big component of it. It's almost a third of, of the entire inflation calculation. Um, healthcare, medical, that's been going up a lot. But as we've talked about before, if you take a look at how you manage your own household budget, right, um, most of your healthcare payments, those are pretty fixed right now because you're under a contract for a year. So your your healthcare payments aren't adjusting every single month, right, due to inflation. So inflation may be rising, but your healthcare costs aren't going up because you're under a contractual period. Uh, your mortgage payment didn't go up last month because of inflation, right? Your mortgage payments, it's, it's contractually fixed. So that's not the type of inflation, while that's reflected in CPI, that's not the inflation that's impacting you at your household level. What impacts you at your household level is going to the store to buy food. And of course, you know, now you go in the store and there's like barren shelves and prices are going up. And of course, there's also the, the invisible form of inflation in grocery stores called shrinkflation, which is where you get, you know, a lot more air in a bag of potato chips and a lot less potato chips, right? So, you know, inflation comes in a couple of different forms, not just necessarily higher prices, just paying more, but getting less. And of course, also, you know, gas at the pump. You fill your car up every week, and of course, that price does fluctuate every week that you go to the gas station, right? It's, it's, it goes up. And so those are the things that impact individuals and you know, households the most, right? They've got to pay for their standard of living. Now, this is this is really the, the kind of the, the interesting, important point to make here. And this particularly goes to the heart of, you know, the Build Back Better plan. And of course, a lot of the commentary by mainstream media, of course, the, the more left-leaning mainstream media that are supportive of the Build Back Better plan, that we need to give more money to poor households, right? Because they need money to pay for childcare and these type of things. Well, that's fine, but that also increases inflation because again as we've talked about more before if you give people money to spend the people providing the goods and services that they're going to spend that money on are going to go up in price so if you take a look at where do most people spend their child tax credit number one item food what's going up the most food <laughs> so you know that's the problem we can give people money but it creates inflation because it adds to the demand of the economy at a time where you have a lack of supply to keep up with that demand we're pull, pulling forward consumption so it doesn't really lift people out of poverty because the people that need that money right of course this is this is the this is the conversation is that we need to give money to poor people because they need the money I get it, right? And, and you know, from a, a moral, you know, Christian perspective, I certainly understand we want to help everybody. It's fine, but you're not really helping them because when you give them money, about 80% of their expenditures goes to things just to support their daily household. So when you create inflation, you may not be increasing tax rates on the poor, but you are taxing them to death through inflation and they can't keep up with it. In fact, if you take a look at real wages, real wages are not keeping up with the rate of inflation, which means that, of course, is that even though I may be getting a pay raise, and if we take a look at where the majority of wage growth has come from over the course of the last year, it's been in these lower, lower wage paying industries, hospitality, healthcare, retail food services, those type of things. 
those are those jobs that those that, that bottom 20, 30, 40% of the economy, that's where they work. So while they're getting pay raises, right? Remember the whole $15 an hour, we need to pay a fair wage, those type of things. Well, they're all getting paid a fair wage now, but it's not keeping up with inflation. And this is, this is the unspoken truth of economics that nobody ever tells you about. You know, when we were talking, and, and we discussed this here on the show many times, it's like, Everybody wants to pay $15 hour minimum wage, right? $7.50 a minimum wage, that's not fair. We need to give everybody $15 an hour minimum wage. No problem. What we said to you then was exactly what's happening today. Raise the wages, guess what you're gonna get? Inflation, because everybody else knows you're getting paid more money, so they're gonna do what? They're gonna raise their prices to you. And that's how inflation works. You can't have one without the other. And this is the, this is the mistake that politicians make, economists make, they always assume that things operate in a vacuum. If I have a change of something, it's not going to affect everything else. And it's just clearly erroneously wrong. <laughs> and this is also the problem with the Fed. The Fed thinks honestly that we're having 7% inflation and magically they can come into the economy they can raise rates, they can tighten monetary policy, and magically they will slow inflation exactly back to the 2% level and then inflation will stop going down. <laughs> the problem is, is they caused the inflation to begin with between them and the federal government and the treasury. They caused the inflationary push to start with. Now they think that they can reverse it without throwing the economy into a recession. And guess what's probably gonna happen? It's not. <laughs> so, you know, but this is the way it always works out throughout history. So you need to be really aware that, you know, all these things that people talk about in Washington on politics and we need to do this and do that. And we need to spend more money. There are there is not a situation. There's what we call no free lunch. There is nothing that you can do that doesn't have an equal and opposite effect somewhere else in the economy. Everything reflects to each other. So, again, the only way that you can create better outcomes is to provide better opportunities to create those outcomes. And that's, that's the only way you can get there. Giving people money, providing more money into the system, you wind up with these very deleterious effects of inflation and other broken systems within the economy that impact the very set of individuals that you're trying to help the most. And of course, the reality of all this is trying to buy votes for the upcoming midterm election, and you know this isn't working well. Joe Biden right now faces one of the worst approval ratings as a president. Why? Because of inflation. People are going to the pumps, and it doesn't. And this is, and most of these polls that are coming out for Biden right now are coming from very left-leaning sources that are very supportive of the president. So again, they can't even bring those pollster numbers up enough because those very individuals that they're polling are the ones that are going to the gas station to buy $4 a gallon gasoline, uh, which is what you're gonna see this summer across the country. So again, this is gonna be very problematic going into the midterms. And again, this is gonna have a lot to do with whether or not more policies get passed or not. And of course, a lot of debate right now about getting rid of the filibuster, something they may wanna really rethink um, because they may really want the filibuster next year because traditionally, whatever party is in power, almost every election, with the exception of one going back to 1938, the, P the party that was in power lost seats during the midterm elections. And so again, with already low approval ratings, high inflation, a Fed that's tightening monetary policy, we will have a weaker economic environment. And if we have a weaker stock market, you can almost guarantee a very big turnover in the political setup. And again, so going into next year, policy changes are gonna be much harder to come by for the Democrats, um, particularly on more of these uh, social agenda programs that they've been trying to pass. So again, this has big impacts all this, but we're getting more into the Fed, inflation, and what they said yesterday, uh, or, or on Tuesday at their, at their meeting about what they're gonna be doing with interest rates and money. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. 
Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Of course, it is Thursday. That means that Michael Leibowitz is joining me this morning as well to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve and, you know, their recent uh, kind of policy statements that they've been much more aggressive on in terms of potential rate hikes, tightening their balance sheet, um, you know, changes. And again, the idea is simply this, is that while they feel that they need to be hiking rates because inflation is running at 7%, they think they can magically control it, um, bring it back down to 2%, and then it'll stop going down from there. So, you know, uh, you know, again, you know, how do you decrease inflation, right? This is the big question, right? What, what's inflation? It's a, it's, it's a point where you have more demand than you have supply, and that causes prices to rise. These things don't operate in a vacuum. So if I'm having economic growth, and I think this and this is the, the point we're going to get into this morning. So if I'm having economic growth and I start hiking rates into an environment where I have economic growth, which is creating inflation, right? So let's think about the process of how we get to inflation. I have stronger economic growth. So as I have stronger economic growth, people are making more money. They have more money to spend, so that increases demand. So suppliers go, okay, you've got more money to spend. I'm going to supply you the products you want, and I'm going to charge you a little more for it. And then price wages go up some more because the economy is growing more. Why? Because the economy is 70% consumption. So as we're consuming more, that means we're going to make more money. And then as we make more money, we're going to buy more stuff. And as we buy more stuff, pro providers of those products say, I'm going to raise my price a little bit more. So that's how you get inflation. And this is, the, this is a really key point. And as I was saying in, the, in kind of our opening commentary is that the mistake that we continue to make in terms of politics is this idea that we, can, we need to give people money to spend. And if we give people money to spend, then they'll be okay. But that's the wrong way, that, that's the wrong approach to doing it because if I give them money to spend then they'll spend it and then it's over, right? The money's gone. In order to create a strong economic environment, we have to produce first. There's, there's a cycle to act creating economic growth. And this is the thing our economists have forgotten. This is the thing our Fed has forgotten, things our politicians have forgotten, is that if you want to create stronger economic prosperity, you have to get people to produce first. They go to produce something, right? They go to work, they get a paycheck, and then they consume, and that paycheck comes every every two weeks, right? So every two weeks, they've got money to, to produce more with. So the more people that I get put to work in the overall economy, the more they're producing. So they're producing the product that ultimately we need to buy, but they are generating the capital to buy it with. Then they go buy the product, which, which causes uh, demand. Demand is then met by more production, and we go through the cycle. That's a virtuous cycle of the economy that creates better economic prosperity across the board. And at that point, economic growth is rising in tandem with inflation. You're not having spikes of inflation caused by an artificial surge. Now, having said all that, now I'm gonna jump over to Mike here because this is really kind of the impetus of the box that the Fed has gotten themselves into. And I think it's a point, Mike, that the Fed has forgotten is that they're starting to look at the economic cycle we have right now as an organic one. This is like we have organic economic growth that's going to continue, so we need to start hiking rates. I think they may have forgotten that this, this surge in economic activity was driven in by an artificial input. Right, right. I mean, all the data that they're looking at to make these decisions is largely based on behaviors both government and people and corporations of the last two years that were anything but normal. And now the Fed's acting like this is, you know, inflation's high, but they're acting like it's normal. And they just think with the magic wand, they can just reduce inflation. Maybe they can. They also think, like you said, that they can just stop inflation at 2% <laughs> like magic. Now, I remind you, for the last 10 years prior to uh, the pandemic, the Fed was so concerned they couldn't get inflation up to 
So they have all these magical tools, but they couldn't get inflation to rise from one and a half to two percent, a measly half percent. Now they think they have the tools to bring it down. But Lance, which, by the way, are the same tools. Well, yeah, it's the same tools. (laughs) It's it's like the old saying, you know, give somebody a hammer. They think everything's a nail, right? (laughs) Right. But let's talk about the Fed for a second. Yeah. Right. You know, and we're guilty, too. Right. We're saying the Fed's hawkish. Right. Look at any newspaper. Look at any tweet. The Fed's hawkish. They're going to raise rates. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Well, let's look at them. All right. Inflation is running 7%. PPI today, which is commodities and kind of more raw materials, is going to print at about 10% today. And what's the Fed doing? The Fed is still injecting money into the market via QE at a very at a historically very high rate. And Fed funds are still zero. Mm-hmm. The Fed still has their foot on the gas pedal, and it's maybe not floored anymore, but it's pretty, you know, they're still going 100 miles an hour. So is the Fed really hawkish? I know they're talking a game, but they have yet to prove that they will do anything to even just moderate monetary policy. Yeah. Now, now they're going to have, they've been talking to talk, they're going to have to walk that walk starting Soon. probably March, yeah. right? So well, they, they have a, a meeting I, in January and now March. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, is, is that really kind of the, the, the game here for the Fed is that they can, they're kind of hoping to kind of jawbone markets and inflation down a little bit. So, again, you know, let's go back to why do we raise interest rates? The reason the Fed raises interest rates and tightens monetary policy is to slow economic activity because that's how you get rid of inflation. You get people to, con- you start to slow the demand side of the equation. The supply side catches up, and that's how you get rid of inflation, right? So, you know, that's what the Fed's hoping to do. And, and, and I guess the question, Mike, is, is is the Fed hoping that by just kind of continuing to do what they do, they, kind of, so they can keep supporting asset prices? Because, again, you know, this is the real box the Fed is in. Here's my choices, and neither one of them are good. I abandoned the stock market. I started aggressively hiking rates and removing QE. The stock market prices declined by 20 or 30%, but I don't go bail them out, right? I just, you know, asset prices, you're on your own, overvaluations, et cetera. They've warned about overvaluations, but that destroys consumer confidence. So you start destroying consumer confidence by letting markets collapse. So those people stop spending money because now they're worried about their 401ks, et cetera. Or do I try to keep supporting the stock market and letting inflation run rampant, which then at the same time impacts consumer households because now inflation's rising faster than their incomes and they can't buy as much. And so they get disappointed and they stop buying as much and you wind up in a recession. You know, it doesn't really seem like either choice is a good choice. And if you go to combat inflation, and so if that's your choice, the stock market's going to start declining and you can't stop fighting your fight of inflation to go back and try to bail out the stock market. It's, you know, it's going to be a very interesting problem that the Fed's about to face. Right. It's pick your poison, right? Yeah. But it's also this is a pick your poison for Biden because the the political ramifications are growing with every CPI report. Just glancing through the headlines this morning they are linking inflation with political prospects for the coming election and and not just the coming election, but whatever Biden thinks he can get through the House and Senate before the upcoming elections. Mm -hmm. And he's going to have to choose to put pressure on the Fed to do things fiscally as well to limit inflation that will hurt the stock market. So which one helps helps the ruling party more? Is it lower inflation or is it taking a hit on the stock market, you know, or, you know, keeping the stock market afloat. Right. And that's the question that Biden and his team, I'm sure, are talking about every day. And they're probably I'm sure they're talking to the Fed, too. And right now the Fed is saying, we got this. We got this. We're going <laughs> to we're going to scare the markets. We're going to be so hawkish. That's fine. But the market's kind of calling their bluff right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Stocks are down a couple percent. And look, estimates are for the Fed to hike rates four times, but there are no estimates for QE and QT. Right. Right. There, there's no way to to imply what the markets are saying about QE and QT. And I think if we really get to the point where we're in March and QE ends and they start aggressively reducing their balance sheet, that's when the market will really start to take notice. And that's where there's this chicken or the egg thing that Powell, that Biden 
and others are going to have to choose between. And that's when I think this gets really interesting. Right. Well, I mean, this, and this is and this is going to be the big choice. And, and, and again, it's going to be interesting. And, and we've talked about this before. You know, one of the mistakes that that started with Barack Obama as president and then it went to Trump and now it's gone to Biden is that they started tying their presidencies to the outcome of the stock market. And the they started tying their success rate as a president to the stock market. So the stock market was going up is like, see, you know, look how good I'm doing as as a president because look at what the stock market's doing. Um, you know, that change has now linked the presidencies to the Fed and the Fed to the stock market. And and so now this is gonna become a real challenge here. You know, if you take a look, I was just talking about this morning. You know, if you take a look at President Biden's approval ratings, they're, they are the worst that they've been on record so far. Approval is down to 33%, and that's primarily due to inflation. But now, if you throw a stock market crash on top of that, and, and, and by the way, don't everybody listening, just don't freak out. I'm not saying there's going to be a stock market crash. I'm just saying if you had a big decline in the stock market going into the election— you know, that's certainly not going to bode well for the midterms. And again, you kind of got to almost think that at some point he just renominated Powell for the position as Fed chairman. You'd almost have to think at some point here he's going to start leaning on. It's like you need to fix this and fix this quick. We're right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Uh, we'll talk about what the Fed just recently said. And actually not just the not just Jerome Powell, but a couple of other um fed members as well talking about aggressiveness of rate hikes aggressiveness of balance sheet tapering what that potentially means to the markets and your money and already uh we're starting to see some people coming out talking about uh worse outcomes don't go away more of that coming back after the break investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year join danny ratliff and richard rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on saturday january 15th you'll learn the landmines to avoid tax advantages we see and money tips you need to know in the new year Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. Michael Lee, which joining me this morning, talking a little bit about the Fed and kind of what's going on here. Um, Jeremy Siegel, who, of course, is the finance professor from Wharton um, and also, you know, involved with ETFs and other things, so it kind of has a bias towards, you know, selling you equities, um, said this. He says, everything is pointing upward. Everything is going up. Of course, you know, that kind of intuitive insight was what you would expect from a Wharton PhD. Uh, <laughs> okay, just a little bit. Um, of course, he's talking about inflation. He says the, the problem is demand. He says there's too much money chasing too few goods. Um, and that's because of the artificial nature of, of what we put in the economy. But he's, he's saying that, you know, don't worry about it. It's all going to be fine because, you know, the Fed's going to be much more aggressive here. Now, here's the, here's this kind of idea of trying to thread the needle on a bull case for equities. He says the Fed's going to be far more aggressive here in trying to combat inflation than even what Wall Street thinks. So they're going to hike, according to uh, Jeremy Siegel, they're going to be hiking rates faster. But that's okay because bond prices are going to go down because yields are going to go surging higher because the Fed's hiking rates and stocks will do well because there's simply no other alternative. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that thesis because history says 
that's not actually what happens. But before we get there, and we're going to come back to that, that point here in a second. Um, just recently, Jerome Powell was in front of, you know, giving testimony on his renomination, talking about the, the fact that they need to hike rates and run off the balance sheet probably at a faster pace than they're already talking about. In fact, Mike, it uh, wasn't just him. It was a couple of other Fed members as well. Uh, yesterday, I thought, was a big one. It was uh, Mester, Loretta Mester from, uh, I believe she's from the Cleveland Fed. And last time I was on, we actually addressed a question from a client of ours uh, asked me earlier. And he said, how does the Fed do QT? So how do they reduce the size of their balance sheet? And the answer was that they let bonds mature. And as bonds mature and they're not buying bonds, the size of the balance sheet decreases. And they have a lot of very short-term bonds. So doing so, even when they're doing QT under that scenario, they still may buy some bonds because they may not want 50 billion maturing in a month. They may only want 30 billion. Mm -hmm. So they have to buy 20 to offset the 50. And then other months, it, it's, it may be the opposite. But what she said yesterday that market didn't seem to care. But I think what I thought was very important was she said they, on top of letting bonds mature, they could also sell bonds. That tells me that she at least, not speaking necessarily for the Fed, but she at least wants to get rid of the excess QE that they did over the last two years much quicker. Well, and now she, 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 but she added a caveat to that. We can, we can, we can sell back bonds to the market as long as there's financial stability. Financial stability means as long as stock prices do not get crushed. Right. As long as, long as everybody's behaving rationally, this is the idea. And it's something right. we've talked about before. You know, this is the whole premise of Hyman Minsky's Minsky moment. In fact, I just wrote an article about this recently is – what a Minsky moment is, is when a extended period of a of a bull market um, leads to an excessive over leveraging of the markets and then something changes and this stability that's created by this bullish attitude becomes instable very quickly. And this is what the Fed's dependent on. The Fed's dependent upon this paradox of stability and instability because what happens is that if after a long period of stability stability itself becomes unstable and while the fed's talking about oh we just as long as the markets are stable it'll be fine but yet they're doing the very thing that leads ultimately to instability in the markets and 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 there's a long history of this i mean we can go back to 1980 when the fed became much more active and every time without exception, that the Fed has started to go into a rate hiking campaign, it is ultimately ended in a recession, a market problem, or a crisis of some sort. And, you know, it, it's either directly or indirectly related to the activities of increasing interest rates and impacting monetary accommodation in the markets. Now, you know, and, and so and, and now they're going to do it again with this idea that they can control it and they're not going to come to this same conclusion that they've come to every single time previously. Right. And I think where this could potentially get interesting down the road is let's just say the S&P is down 15 or 20 percent, but inflation is still chugging along. Mm -hmm. Maybe it drops to six and a half or even six percent. Sure. What are they going to do? Are they going to say, you know what? We're just kidding. We're done. <laughs> We're done with this whole QT thing. Rates are good enough. They're at half a percent now. That's probably fine. Inflation is moderating, and we think that it's going to – they're going to use a word like moderating. Yeah. Right? To, to Like they use transitory, and we saw how well that, that worked out for them. They're going to use a word moderating, which basically will lead people to think that it's going to go from 7 to 6 to 5, back all the way back to 2 over the course of a transitory period. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is where the rubber hits the road. Maybe they're right, and maybe inflation drops like a rock all the way back to their – their beloved 2%, but they're going to have a hard time stopping, stopping doing what they're doing if, and the market keeps dropping, if inflation isn't coming down. And we can make a strong case that inflation should come down, but we can also make a strong case that inflation may stay where it's at or even increase a little bit, right? I mean, there's a lot of factors on both sides. What we did to this economy over the last two years is unprecedented. And 
not just in the amount of money that we threw at it or the way the economy was shut down. We've never seen anything like it, but also the psychological and the behaviors of of what's happened to everyone and how they've reacted and how they spend money and how they think about things very differently than they did just two years ago. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone wants to work from home now. Two years ago, that wasn't even an option. Right. Right. We're, think about how many people that have bought bought second homes or even third homes or sports cars or it's, you know, to some degree, a lot of people had a midlife crisis, but it's not just those that were midlife. It's a a lot of people. And all that is working through the economy. And it's not just in America. This is around the world that that many of these same things or factors are going on. And to you have to be extremely humble to think that, you, you know, to 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 grasp inflation and you have to understand that yes mathematically it should certainly come down when we start getting out to march april may Mm -hmm. but this whole wage wage price spiral that you were talking about in the opening segment is real wages are going up people are quitting their jobs they can't hire them they can employees can demand a lot more and right now companies can pass on those higher wages back to those same people for now. So, and, and but here's a real, and I want to, I want to be really clear about something you just said is that you said that, yeah, inflation may start to moderate and come back a bit, um, you know, as we get later into the year. And that's, that, that is correct. Um, from the standpoint that we measure inflation on a year over year basis, that doesn't mean that prices actually got cheaper. And I think this is right. the one thing that people really miss out on in terms of and the fed itself right is that you know if we just do a little bit of work here inflation is going to come down naturally just from the standpoint of how we measure inflation but as far as the consumer goes and what happens economically if if gas stays at four dollars a gallon for an entire year then there's been no inflation in energy prices right but they're still paying four dollars a gallon in gasoline and if wages don't catch up with that that's going to become problematic for them to make ends meet. That's going to be problematic for the economy. So, again, just because we say inflation is going to come back here and we could approach back to 2% inflation doesn't mean things actually get cheaper. No, but here's another side to that argument. What if we prices really start coming down and we actually get deflation? Wages are also sticky, right? Mm-hmm. It's very rare when you hear an employer telling their employees, oh, you're going to take a pay cut this year. Yeah, but you know right? what's not so sticky? These- what? You know what's not sticky? What's that? Employment. If, you, if, if wages are sticky, that's correct. But what's not sticky right. is, is that companies will start laying off workers. Right. And that's the point. So if prices start coming way down and, and wages now have been jacked up for two years, you got a potential, you got the same problem on the other side of the coin. And that's where you get an employment problem. Right. And that's why these factors are massive and they're unprecedented. And the Fed doesn't have nearly as much control over all this stuff as anyone thinks they do. There, there are factors they do not control. And <laughs> that's why, you know, you have to keep your head head up and think about all different kind of scenarios and how they affect your investments and how they affect your life. Yeah. Well, your budget. Yeah, when we come back from the break, I, I do want to go back to what uh, Jeremy Siegel said about bonds, because I think it's really that's going to be a really kind of critical component this year. You know, his exact statement was, is that, you know, Stocks are real assets. You just can't hold paper assets, which are bonds. And I find this very interesting because he says stocks are a real asset. Bonds are a paper asset. I don't want to talk about that when we come back because that's not really correct. And the other side of this is is that there is an alternative to stocks. And investors tend to find that alternative when things don't go well in markets. And we'll talk about both of those statements from Jeremy Siegel when we come back with Michael Leibowitz right after the break.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential Smart Money Tips for the New Year Candid Coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Oslan Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me as well. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog posts, newsletters, all that up on our website. Videos, daily commentary is out this morning. So look, it's all on the website. Tons of stuff there to keep you up to date on what's happening with markets and your money. Just simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. So uh, as I said, just for the break, uh, Jeremy Siegel, professor from Wharton, says that there is no alternative uh, for stocks in the markets and trading is going to help buttress the equity markets as bonds get hit. Now, he's talking about as the Fed starts to hike rates and tighten monetary liquidity, that stocks are going to be just fine and bonds are going to be the ones that take a hit. Now, he goes on to say this. He says stocks are real assets. You just can't hold paper assets like bonds. Okay, let me start with that statement real quick here. So first of all, if you buy or sell a stock, you have bought a piece of paper and you're hoping that that piece of paper goes up in price. Warren Buffett, when he buys stock, he buys enough stock in the company that he walks into the uh, board of directors meeting and says, excuse me, pointing to the guy at the head of the table, you're in my chair. And... That's the difference between being an investor and being a speculator in the markets. You and I and Mike and Brent and everybody else, we speculate in the markets because, look, let's be realistic. All we're doing is buying pieces of paper, hoping they go up in price, and we're going to sell them at a higher price later. We're not making decisions for the company. In fact, most of the companies you probably buy, you have no idea what the company actually does anyway. You're just buying them because somebody told you to on CNBC or the stock price is going up. You don't really do that much research in buying stocks. That's the majority of people. I'm not, I'm not insulting you. Just don't get me wrong. But most people, they don't, do, they don't put in the work and the research to buy an asset. An asset is a piece of real estate that you own. An asset is a block of gold or bar of gold that you own. Those are real assets. Those are assets that you buy, you hold. They have a physical, physical capacity to them. Stocks don't. Bonds, too, they're paper, right? Difference is, is bonds, particularly when issued by the government or an obligation by the government to fully repay your principal at maturity plus all of your interest payments. You do not get that guarantee with stocks. So if I was going to call one a real asset over another, I would call government bonds a real asset versus stocks, you know, paper stocks that I'm trading and hoping for a profit and have no guarantee of principal in. Um so just to clarify, I just wanted to clarify that point. Now, here, and Mike, and so Mike, coming to you about this, you know, when we're talking about quantitative easing and tightening, you know, he's saying that interest rates are going to go soaring higher because the Fed is tightening interest rates, but history doesn't really bear that out. Oh, contraire. History has shown that every time the Fed tapers or stops doing QE, interest rates go down. There's also one instance of QT in 2018 where the Fed actually reduced the size of their balance sheet and yields dropped by about a full 1% in a very steep decline. So what history has shown is that when the Fed is going to do what is is tapering what they're what they're they're starting to do now but come March when QE ends yields could drop significantly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's and, because, and by the way, just back to 2018, stocks didn't fare all that well either. Right. Yeah, stocks you were down 20 percent declines yeah. that year. Yeah. And then if you remember, no one remembers this, but in 2019, 
because the economy was starting to lag a little bit and there were some problems with hedge funds that weren't able to make as much money as they're used to making. <laughs> the Fed lowered interest rates three times and they started doing QE with Treasury bills that they refused to call QE, even though it's QE. Right. They called it repo. Uh, <laughs> Reverse repo. So we repo. saw where the last QT got us. Exactly. And that was before COVID. That had nothing to do with COVID at the time. Right. So, you know, but Lance, just one quick point. You're comparing treasury bonds to stocks, and that's not necessarily apples to apples. Mm -hmm. Let's just compare apples to apples. Okay. An IBM corporate bond versus IBM stock. Sure. Which would you rather have? IBM you, corporate you, you bond. You can make an argument each way. <laughs> if IBM defaults, IBM has to sell their factories, make good on whatever debt. So as an IBM bondholder, you may get 30 or 40 cents on a dollar. Mm -hmm. As an IBM shareholder, you're likely to get nothing or pennies on the dollar. Yep. So so bonds actually have a higher place in the in the structure, in the financial structure for companies than it does stocks. Yeah. So, and, and, and let's run through that really quick, because I think that's important. In the event of a bankruptcy for a company, there is an order of payment that the judge will look at and say, OK, so IBM, they've got a billion dollars worth of stuff, right? Or a hundred billion. You pick your number. First people to get paid, IRS. <laughs> so any back taxes, whatever, your know, government takes their share first. Then payroll. Anybody that's owed payroll, et cetera, employees, et cetera, they're, they're paid. Then comes bonds. And bondholders are next in line. And they get whatever's left. So uh, to Mike's point, they go to sell off the, the factories, the real estate, everything else. And then this is in a pure bankruptcy. Now, this is not in a restructuring where they just basically, you know, restructure the balance sheet. This is in the environment where you're talking about a, a complete liquidation. Uh, bondholders then get whatever's left. Now, if there's anything left over after bondholders are paid at full face value, then it goes to preferred stockholders. And then if there's anything left over as a shareholder, you might get something that's left. Generally, it never gets past the bondholders. Correct, Mike? Correct. And when we look at the chances of default, the way to do it is you don't look at the price of a bond. And if a bond price is 100, that's called par, and it matures at par, you could say there's a 0% chance of default. But let's say that price drops to 90. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're pricing in a 10%. It's not really the way it works because there's what's called a liquidation value. So what, you know, IBM's liquidation value may be very different than Ford's or very different than Google's. So Ford's may be 20 cents on a dollar. Google's may be 50 cents on a dollar. So if something drops from 100 to 90, it's out of 50, not out of the full 100 that they start assessing the default value. But keep in mind, if the bond holders don't get back 100 cents on a dollar, there's nothing left for preferred and equity holders. <laughs> exactly. And, and so this is and the, the point that we bring, the reason we, we, we bring this up is really twofold is one, you know, bonds often get a bad rap by the media because, well, they're not producing double digit returns in a year. And we're all swept up into this gambling attitude about the markets. It's like, oh, you know, how much money can I make? Well, that's all great as long as markets are going up. But don't forget that markets can also go down. And you can lose a lot of money. And the, and the good thing about bonds and the reason we own bonds in our portfolios as well is because there is, they lower volatility of the overall portfolio. They, they perform better. They're what we call in, in our terms, in terms of portfolio management, we call them a risk off asset. So market works very simplistically on a risk on risk off attitude. And if you'll notice, this is always the case. When markets are tending not to do well, bonds tend to do better. That's because money's coming out of equities and looking for a place of safety. And so we tend to see those flow into 10-year treasury notes, et cetera. It's a risk-off trade. Um, Bitcoin's a good example of this, right? When you know stocks aren't doing well, Bitcoin doesn't do well because it's all a risk-off trade. So again, you know, having something in your portfolio that tends to be that risk-off trade you know, acceptor, what the, the part of your portfolio that gains from that risk-off trade helps lower that volatility. If we get into a market environment where the Fed is tightening rates, they are reducing liquidity, as we were talking about, the market's going to start moving towards more of a risk-off attitude. If I'm going into a risk-off attitude, I have two choices, cash or bonds. And bonds pay more than cash. So from, a, from an investor standpoint and from a manager standpoint, I'm going to buy 10-year Treasury notes because... I have enough duration that as yields fall, I make capital appreciation on my bonds. But I also, if things don't work out exactly the way I think, 
I have a set maturity that I'm going to get all my money back plus an interest stream over time. So I've got a guarantee of payment. And this is an important part that we brought up previously. I'm going to have to, re, have to re, revive this article talking about the. Th there's only three things that you can get from any investment. You can get return, safety, or yield. But you, can't, you can only have two of three of those things. You can't have all three. You can't have return, safety, and yield. So in bonds, I have safety and I have yield. In stocks, I have return and I've got liquidity, right? But I don't have safety. And that's the important part about that is the, is the idea that, you know, stocks are not a safe investment. They are a pure risk investment. We're speculating on prices and you've got to be aware of when that speculation is now turning against you. You're basically, when you add bonds to a portfolio, you're hedging return and safety. You're, you're adding both to the portfolio. So your portfolio can have pieces of all three. Right. Even though each individual security doesn't, it's a way to, to get all three that you can't get in any one security. Right. And look, but, and let's be clear, though. If you do that, you're not going to pace a benchmark index. So in other words, if you, know, if you add, say, a function of safety and liquidity to your portfolio, you, know, you are not going to be able to pace an all-equity index that is pure speculation. And, you know, but this is where we've got to align our goals and what our, our real investment goals are with how we allocate our portfolio. And, you know, right now, though, we've taught an entire generation of people that have never been through a bear market to only buy stocks because that's all they've ever seen go up. Right, right. A bear market that has lasted more than three days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they may find they may find out this year what a real bear market looks like. We'll you know, or maybe next year we'll see what happens. But uh, anyway, Mike, thanks so much for the time. Uh, yep. Be sure you get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Mike's latest article is out actually talking about stocks and bonds. It's on the website now. The outlook for 2022 stocks and bonds. Uh, it goes through a good analysis on that. Also. Uh, our daily market commentary comes out every morning at 730. Uh, just click the banner on the web page. And of course, uh, you'll get subscribed and we'll deliver it to you every morning. Kind of gives you a quick rundown, very short synopsis about what's happening in the markets and what to kind of be looking out for earnings, economic reports, etc. And of course, also check out our new subscriber platform, simplevisor.com. That's simplevisor.com, where we can manage all the money for you digitally. It's all on the website, simplevisor.com. Be back tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday with Danny and Richard. In the meantime, have a great day. Stick around. Three minutes of Markets and Money coming up shortly. And do what? <laughs> what are we doing? I didn't want to go over it, but I wanted to go through the charts and let's start thinking about where to start moving stuff around. Okay, see you, man.
Stocks, bonds, gold, and energy. Let's talk about what those markets are doing today. Be right back on three. Uh, stocks, bonds, gold, energy. We're going to go through what markets are doing today right here on Three Minutes of Markets and Money. Let's start with the S&P yesterday, of course. Uh, okay. Let's start by looking at the S&P yesterday, of course. A nice little rally above the 20 and the 50-day moving average here over the last couple of days. Now, we're still on a sell signal currently, but we're starting to slowly turn that up, and money flows are now turning positive. So again, some good signs here in the short term that suggest markets could kind of continue to eke out a rally here towards all, you know, some good signs here that markets could continue to kind of eke out a rally here towards previous all-time highs. Again, don't know if we'll get there just yet. Lots of concern right now over inflation numbers, of course, what's happening with the Fed, tapering, etc. So again, still pressure on stock prices really across the board. But again, a better improvement here after this recent sell-off and test of that two standard deviation break of the 50-day moving average uh, a few days um, last week. Say that again without stuttering so much. Of course, that's good news and suggests that markets could rally back here towards all-time highs. Now, that is good news, of course, considering that just recently we saw the market sell off towards this break of the 50-day moving average and a test of the two-standard deviation uh, line below that 50-day moving average. So again, we had this oversold condition. Market's now beginning to recover. So again, looking to use this rally as an opportunity to rebalance risk in portfolios. But where are we going to be rebalancing that risk to? Part of that may be into actual bonds. Like stocks previously, bonds have also gotten extremely oversold here. Again, pushing three standard deviations below the 50-day moving average. We are starting to see a bit of recovery here now in bond prices. Of course, yields coming down, bond prices coming up. Plenty of room here for bonds to rally here over the next really couple of weeks. And this would suggest that we may get a little bit of a risk-off trade in equity. So again, not so much that there's a clear upside to stocks at the moment, there's actually probably a better opportunity short-term in bonds because we're also triggering our money flow buy signal and money flows are starting to turn positive in bonds themselves. So again, take a look at TLT as a potential risk off trade, uh, adding a little bit of exposure there to portfolios certainly wouldn't hurt here, particularly if we start to get more volatility in, <clears throat> particularly if we get more volatility in stocks because of concerns over higher inflation, again, Fed policy, et cetera. Let's flip over and take a look at the energy market for a second. While energy stocks have done really well here over the last few weeks, in fact, they are far outpacing the S&P this year so far, just year-to-date returns for the energy sector. Oil prices are now pushing back up into pretty overbought levels. Uh, we are triggering a bullish buy signal on oil prices, which does suggest that oil prices will remain elevated and potentially work themselves a little bit higher. But in the short term, they are very overbought here, very close to triggering a sell signal. Uh, that would suggest that we could get a retracement in oil prices back down to about $75. Now, this would actually kind of line up with what we kind of expect in the market. We saw this rush into the value trade at the beginning of this year. NASDAQ stocks, growth stocks really kind of got beaten down. We could see a rotation now over the course of the next couple of weeks, seeing some of these value trades come off a bit, give us an opportunity to add to those value trades here on a pullback, see bonds perform better on that risk off trade period, and then get an opportunity to rebalance risk heading uh, further into the year as the Fed begins this uh, tightening policy that they've been talking about. Uh, think value will continue to outperform this year, at least so far. But again, value very overbought here short term. So we need to see a bit of a pullback before making more, 
before making more allocations to that area. We need to see a pullback here first before <clears throat> we need to see a pullback here before making further allocations to the value trade. Now let's flip over and look at gold because that's been one of the big questions this week. Despite the fact that inflation has continued to run hot here, real yields continuing to suggest that we should be seeing higher prices in gold really just have not seen a lot of impetus in the gold buying section itself. In fact, gold continues to really kind of just languish here sideways a bit um, as really stocks have been performing a little bit better here as of late. Again, gold is not only just an inflation trade, and right now gold is vastly underperforming the rise in inflation, so it really hasn't been a good inflation trade up to this point. But gold is more of a fear trade at this point in the market cycle because of, uh, because of a decade now of monetary interventions and liquidity injections. That has become more of a fear trade. When we begin to see a risk-off trade in the markets where fears start to really rise on the stock side of the ledger, we'll probably start to see gold perform better. Now, gold has been basing very nicely here for a while. We are about to trigger a money flow buy signal again, but gold is, is a little overbought here short term just after this little recent rise. So again, a bit of a pullback to around 1800 on gold might be an opportunity to add a little bit of gold to the portfolio. But again, upside is probably limited to about 1860 until we really start to see a fair trade in the market. So again, if Fed tightening and reduction of QT and all this and Fed rate hikes really start to impact stock prices, which most likely they will, we could see gold and bonds performing much better as we get later into this year. Just something to keep your eye on. It's three minutes on Markets of Money. Be back here tomorrow.